0: Buongiorno, everybody, and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked, and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by OfZero in partnership with the OpenID Foundation and ID Pro. In this episode, I wanted to talk about SD JWT or Selective Disclosure JWT, which is a very promising new specification that was just adopted as a work item by the OAuth working group at ITF. But in fact, I wanted to take this opportunity to zoom out a bit and discuss many of the things that are hard or impossible to do with the technologies that we are used to today, like Jot itself, uh, OpenID, the various flows that we use for obtaining identity. Like they have really good properties, which allowed us to bring identity to the place it is today. But they do have some intrinsic limitations. And regardless of whether those limitations are actually a big deal or not, it doesn't matter. I just wanted to flesh those out and just clarify it a bit. And to do this, I could not think of anyone better than Dr. Daniel fact security specialist at YES.com and an old acquaintance of the show, because we already had the honor to have Daniel on the show to explain to us the security BCP a couple of seasons ago. And also, Daniel happened to be the author, one of the co-authors of the SDGWT specification. And so, I'm really looking forward to tapping his brain. Welcome, Daniel.
1: Thank you, Vittorio. Thank you for inviting me again. Obviously, the last episode wasn't too bad, so happy to be here again.
0: The last episode was fantastic. Thank you for being willing to come back to the show. And given that we already had you on the show and we already had the pleasure to hear your story, this time we can just go straight into the topic. And I would love to actually start from the big picture, like if we zoom out a bit and we think about traditional protocols and how they work, and um, can we touch on the things that uh, we know might be interesting, but uh, are very hard to do, or maybe sometimes impossible to do with a traditional approach? What do you think?
1: So, in the traditional approach, let's say, let's say OpenAI Connect as an example. Um, it's a, so from a high level, it's a relatively simple protocol. You have the, the, um, relying party, um, that wants to get some data about the user. Um, and then you have the issuer, um, or the open ID provider and the open ID provider has data about the user. And essentially what you want to do is the, um, relying party wants to get some kind of document saying, okay, this is the user, um. These are some attributes or claims about the user, and this is probably signed by the issuer, the OpenID provider, and so the relying party knows who the user is. So it's really simple. It's really just sending data from A to B. And this is, I mean, this is obviously very successful. So it's being used a lot on the internet, um, almost everywhere where you log in and so on. Uh, So hugely successful, but. There are some scenarios that you cannot cover with that. And we have seen uh, more and more of those in the last years. Usually what you cannot do is you cannot decouple these two steps, the uh, provider saying, hey, this is the user and handing out some kind of document and the relying party getting this document. So this is usually one step in OpenID Connect and in similar protocols as well. And we have seen some instances where it would be really useful to decouple these two steps. For example, say you have your smartphone and you want to, for example, put your driver's license on your smartphone. And then at a later point in time, present this driver license to some relying party or verifier, as it's then often called, to show that you actually have a driver's license or maybe to prove your age or something. And with OpenID Connect, you cannot easily do this because you would need to be online all the time to, in the moment where you want to present your credential to to also talk to the OpenID provider to get the credential. So it's not decoupled. And I think this is really the big picture. So we want to, or not we want to, but there are many um, very good use cases where you want to decouple these two steps.
0: Right, so just to um, summarize, uh, basically, the problem that you identified is that uh, in Open Connect uh, in order to mimic what happens in real life when you present your driving license, uh, you must have line of sight to an active provider that uh, can be ready to serve you these uh, document in real time at the moment in which you need it. Great. So, you know, the, then, uh, the offline scenarios are hard to achieve. And, uh, I would also add probably for the joy of uh, our privacy advocates uh, listening is that uh, um, in real life, when you present uh, the driving license, uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles doesn't know to whom or when you are actually doing this presentation. Whereas uh, in the scenario that you described, it looks like the provider will know where you are going.
1: Exactly. So, um... Maybe you have used your Microsoft, Facebook or GitHub account somewhere online to log in. Uh, then, of course, GitHub, Microsoft or Facebook knows where you're logged in. Um, and you don't always want that. And especially uh, when we're talking about like important and universally used documents, like the driver's license or your passport or something. Um, you don't want everybody to know that you've just used your... Um, driver's license to buy alcohol, for example. Um, so there's there's also a very strong privacy point in decoupling this.
0: And, and I like what you said, how you placed it, which is uh, typical of a scientist that you are rather than the zealot, which is, uh, you don't always want that. Like it's easy for people to uh, get polarized and say, okay, I given that uh, this is privacy preserving, I always want to hide where I'm going. And in fact, uh, As practitioners, we know that there are a number of situations in which we want uh, business rules to run at the identity provider, and those business rules require to know where you are going so that they can decide what goes inside of the token. But there are times in which you want to do that, and just as you pointed out, there are times in which you do not want this. So what we are thinking of here is to extend the things that we can do, not substitute. Uh, would you say it's a fair clarification?
1: Exactly. I mean, um, the success of OpenID Connect and other similar protocols um, shows that they are clearly suitable for a lot of use cases. But um, there are some use cases where you want where, where you value privacy more than the um, relative simplicity of OpenID Connect or. Uh, some other uh, advantages this um, coupled approach. Yes. if you want to, and and we'll get to that later. If you want to decouple uh, these things, um, you also have to jump through uh, quite a number of hoops to get some of the properties that you may take for granted in OpenID Connect. So it's also about like the the effort required to to issue credentials um, or to to run such a um, such a protocol. Uh, that also differs a lot between open and deconnect connect and the decoupled stuff we'll get to in a moment, I guess.
0: That makes a lot of sense. But I guess that if the scenario requires it, then uh, it will be all worth it. Uh, so before we dig uh, further into this, uh, there is another aspect which you hear very often about when uh, these uh, scenarios are discussed. And that is a notion that uh, whereas uh, with classic stuff, It's all or nothing. Let's say that once you get the document you described, your only choice is to present it in its entirety because it's signed. Instead, there are scenarios in which uh, you might want to disclose less than that. Do you want to expand a bit on that particular aspect?
1: Yes, and I think that's um, probably the most important aspect. Um, When you're using OpenID Connect, it's clear because you're talking uh, to the identity provider, OpenID provider, and the relying party almost at the same time, it's clear that the OpenID provider can issue this document, which could be an ID token, for example, exactly for the use case. So the OpenID provider can say, okay, I will include in this, say, the name, a unique user identifier and the age maybe. Um, But this relying party doesn't need to know the address. This relying party doesn't need to know the nationality, for example. So this is really simple in OpenID Connect. You can define the claims that are needed for the use case. Now if you have a decoupled flow where the issuance happens before the presentation, so the issuance happens um, once and then the same thing, credentials, being presented to many relying parties or verifiers, as they are then called, you don't know upfront which details you want to release to each of the relying parties. So going back to the driver's license example, you get the driver's license, and then you want to present it maybe to prove your age. And then of course, only your age is relevant. Maybe at a different place you want to present it to show that you're living somewhere or just that you're allowed to drive uh, the vehicle. And then you need other data from the same credentials. But you don't need that data to prove that you're above a certain age. So you cannot create a credential that only contains your age or your name and age, but not your nationality, because you want to have that included on the same credential. And that's one of these things that are really easy to do in OpenID Connect and harder to do when you do decoupled things. Makes sense.
0: Uh, so then... Here, the, the keywords that often are heard in this context are Selective Disclosure and the other buzzword is uh, Zero Knowledge Proofs. Can you tell for our listeners what they should think when they hear those two terms?
1: Yes. Um, so Selective Disclosure means that you have the credential, the driver's license, for example, And when talking to a verifier, you can release only parts of that credential. So you can say, and you being the holder of that credential, um, you can say, okay, this verifier only gets, say, my address. Or this verifier, this other verifier, only gets my name. And a third verifier gets my name and address. So that's on a high-level selective disclosure. You want to be able to strip out everything from the credential that's not relevant to the use case for privacy reasons, of course. And this also means that maybe you can use different credentials. So in one instance, you can use your driver's license to prove your age. In another instance, you could use your passport. But in both cases, the relying party only gets the relevant data and doesn't learn anything about you that it's not supposed to learn. So that's selective disclosure. And the other thing is zero knowledge proofs. These two are often connected because you will see they are somewhat similar in what they achieve. A zero-knowledge proof means that you having the credential can prove something that is contained in the credential and therefore comes from the issuer without telling the verifier more than it needs to know in a very strict sense. So you can prove that you are above a certain age, uh, for example, 21, without releasing your actual age to the verifier. So there's a mathematical proof protocol going on between you having the credential and a verifier, where the verifier at the end of the protocol will learn that you are above 21 without having learned that you are, say, 23 or 64. doesn't matter. You only release this uh, property that you are above 21 using that proof.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. So just to Send, uh, bouncing it back at you to make sure uh, I understood. in the case of selective disclosure, I have uh, a document with a list of attributes, and I can choose uh, the subset of attributes that I share. So in the k- example of your age, if I have my birth date uh, among with lots of other attributes, I can share just my birth date. Whereas with zero knowledge proof, I can go even farther and uh, not only select the fact that I only want to talk genetically about age, but I can uh, prove that I am above a certain threshold rather than actually revealing the attribute that I have in my document, which in this case uh, is the birth date. Would you say it's a fair characterization?
1: That's very fair. And um, in a sense, the zero-knowledge proof can be used also for selective disclosure because it also means that you only release um, parts of the credential, but um, the, the term zero-knowledge proof um, is or refers to a special technique, special cryptographic technique to achieve that on a very, very fine-grained level.
0: And it makes a lot of sense. Now, I have a pet peeve about this thing because like, uh, we like to use uh, toy scenarios to clarify and uh, make things uh, easier for people to understand. But the funny part is that uh, for zero-knowledge proof, pretty much the only case that I hear talked about is age. And it's like, if you want to prove uh, properties about other attributes, it seems a bit harder. Like for example, I might have, I don't know, an address and I could prove that this address contains a certain city rather than uh, uh, disclosing the entire thing. But uh, in general, it seems like that age is the main scenario. I heard others saying, I can prove that I voted without disclosing uh, what I voted for. But I just wanted to uh, highlight the fact that uh, it's incredibly powerful thing, but uh, it also can be pretty exotic. Like not everything is age. So um, I'm still curious to see some of the use cases where a zero knowledge proof, which is incredibly powerful thing, but uh, potentially expensive uh, is really uh, necessary, let's say.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. It's a, it's a very powerful tool, a very powerful hammer, but not everything is a nail and the one biggest, the biggest nail seems to be the age thing. And oftentimes when you, um, when you have a concrete problem, uh, selective disclosure already goes a very long way, uh, towards solving this. There are also techniques where you can do like a poor man's zero knowledge proof using selective disclosure when you like expand claims, um, but Yeah, not going into the details here, but yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so before we dig further into one specific flavor of Selective Disclosure, which is like the title of the episode, I was curious to talk a bit about the magic which can be used to make those scenarios possible and what are the options out there. Let's say that... I know that in parallel to OpenID and ITF, uh, um, a number of other entities have been working on this problem, and uh, so there might be like keywords uh, floating around. So if you can just like give a high level of uh, what are the things that are used to make the, those new properties viable, and uh, um, some some keywords that people might have heard, like for example. JSON-LD is one of the things that come to mind, is it like, what is it, Uh, who does it, Uh, all of that stuff?
1: Yeah, so first of all, many of these approaches are much older than the SDJOT we'll be talking about later on. And a lot of work uh, went into that. Um, So And and it's a complex landscape. So um, oftentimes you can combine parts of the one thing with the other thing and so on. So just on a very high level, um, I think, one very popular um, mechanism you already mentioned, LD proofs or um, JSON LD, and the other one, uh, AnonCRETS, is also very popular, I think. Let's start with AnonCRETS. Um, AnonCRETS is a format that is based on so called CL signatures, and CL signatures is essentially a yeah signing um, format or signing algorithm which allows you to do uh, things like selective disclosure. So, as you can see from what I just said, the credential format is very uh, closely tied to how this all is signed and how selective disclosure is being done. So, this is one of the formats. The other format um, is W3C, Verifiable Credentials, based on JSON-LDs. Um, JSON-LD is a specific JSON format for so-called linked data, where you can um, essentially link data from multiple documents. um, So it's a very specific syntax for JSON. And uh, on top of that, you can do so-called LD proofs, where you can issue a credential uh, in this format and then later on prove that this was issued by a certain issuer. Using algorithms called BBS, um, or BBS Plus, which, again, so this is the equivalent to the CL signatures um, in this format. And it's a lot of crypto, again, doing selective disclosure. I think also zero-knowledge proofs, man, a bit fuzzy there. But, um, again, very closely tied to the credential format being used. Um, there are also other formats, and w- which, in principle, allow to decouple this. Another format would be... Uh, a uh, classic, you probably know, X509. So you can just uh, essentially create an X509 document signed by the issuer and then present that document somewhere. That's That should also be on the list, um, but um, it doesn't necessarily support selective disclosure and your knowledge proofs and so on. So it's a it's a format to do that, but yeah. yeah.
0: Not very fashionable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not very fashionable, um, yeah. There's um, an ISO effort called Mobile Driver's License, um, obviously uh, connected to the driver's license example that uh, we just uh, talked about. Yeah,
0: we had Andrew Hughes uh, on the show and uh, we did one show on uh, the Mobile Driving License, which is an instance of the more generic categories that you are expounding here.
1: Exactly. Um, So they are also working on that. Um, Yeah, and then there's there's SDJot that we we are working on. And this is um, actually the the youngest of all the mentioned formats.
0: Thank you for uh, making that list. I'm sure that uh, just like me, a lot of people are uh, confused by all the options and uh, it was helpful that you made that list. And now you mentioned a number of times uh, uh, different uh, algorithms and crypto, and I guess they're like, uh, different key formats. So all of those things probably uh, require crypto stocks that are, uh, let's say, non-traditional. Like if I go on uh, any operating system, which out of the box has APIs that help me to do RSA 256 uh, or similar, like uh, will I find the necessary algorithms uh, and key formats or do I need to pull in some uh, extra libraries that teach to my system
1: how to do the new crypto? That is um, exactly the problem that we're seeing in this space. Um, So in many instances, not all of those that I mentioned, but in many of them, um, the features like selective disclosure or zero knowledge proofs are enabled by advanced crypto. So uh, cutting edge, uh, cryptographic algorithms um, that were developed, often specifically for that purpose, which also means that you have to create the credential in this specific format, and you have to verify it using a specific um, algorithm, and of course, the, you as a holder, or your software managing your credentials, uh, which we uh, then call the wallet, uh, the wallet also has to know this um, crypto stuff. and. What we see in the space is that this stuff is hard, which often means that you have one or two implementations of a specific algorithm, so um, not really a diversity, not really a choice between uh, languages and frameworks and so on, uh, because this stuff is just hard to implement. Uh, I mean, cryptography has a tradition of being hard to implement, but oftentimes today you don't have to implement it yourself. Um, I think we are, we all know that you're not supposed to write your own AES or RSA um, implementation for very good reasons. Somebody has to implement this stuff, understand this stuff, implement this stuff, and somebody should audit this stuff as well. Um, and as long as that's not happening, um, nobody knows whether it's secure or not. So the more advanced you get with the cryptography, the harder it is to implement. and while you get a lot of nice features, like very good selective disclosure properties, you have the cool zero-knowledge proofs and so on, this stuff um, is really hard to implement and we only see a couple of implementations and that's not good for the ecosystem.
0: I love these uh, because I think it's a perfect segue for uh, the main meat of the episode, which uh, I think is uh, SDJWT. One thing that uh, I really love of these things that you and Christina came up with is uh, its simplicity. Because, uh, again, as uh, identity experts, privacy advocates, we look at this landscape, we look at those properties and we say, oh, absolutely, those properties are very important. But in fact, the reality is that uh, we don't know what the market uh, really wants and what people really want. Like uh, back in the day, now I'm gonna date myself, but uh, back in the WS star days, in which everything was uh, message-based security, uh we had this uh, property, like a non-repudiation property, which was enabled by uh, all the uh, message-based security that we were using that you don't achieve if you use SSL and better tokens. And we thought, of course, who doesn't want non-repudiation? And it turns out that very few people want it, and the vast majority of people preferred the simplicity of SSL. And so WSTAR basically died in a fire. And uh, SSL and the better tokens uh, have flourished. And now that's what we have. So the thing I love about uh, your idea is that it's so simple that uh, we really, I believe we have a shot as an industry to implement it and to actually put it in the hands of people without the challenges that you described. As in like, uh, I don't have uh, the right crypto stack on this platform, instead like this stuff uh, Actually, I'll stop blabbering and uh, I'll let you describe the idea and the mechanics of this uh, this new spec. Uh,
1: Yeah, (laughs) thank you. One thing I'd like to add. It's not only about having this to implement yourself, but also sometimes about being able to implement something. Because depending on your use case, you might want to have your keys stored in hardware, protected maybe by biometrics and so on. And this can be really hard when your keys are in a, like, or using different algorithms and so on. So if you want to run this stuff on hardware, you need hardware support. And then it's best if you have simple mechanisms with traditional crypto. And also sometimes we have seen that governments Government authorities don't even allow the advanced crypto algorithms. They want something very, very well tested, well audited. Um, so this can be an, a, a really uh, an implementation blocker as well. But getting to SDDRAWD, um as, as you said, we wanted to create something simple, something that's easy to understand, um, where you read maybe two pages of the spec and then you have a very good idea of what's happening here. And hopefully you need to read the spec only twice or so to implement it. Uh, so that's like roughly what we are what um, aiming for. And I think the, there are two important parts to this. The first one is that we decided not to use advanced crypto, but a hash based um, approach. Uh, I guess we'll get to that in a moment. And the other thing is that we wanted to have something that connects well into the OpenID Connect world and the data formats people already know. And when you look at data formats people are using, um, they prefer plain text formats where you can just see the stuff that's going on. We see that everywhere in our industry. People, I mean, of course, a binary format can be very space efficient, uh, can have cool features, and so on but we see people sticking to plain text things. It's always humans developing this stuff, and humans love to see what they are doing, even if it's not relevant to the product shipped to the user. So, sd is based on drawed, and drawed is a very easy-to-understand format. You can, at least most parts of it, you can just open up in an editor and just read what's going on. And that's what we tapped into. We wanted to have a format that works well with OIDC, that's based on JOTs, because JORTs just work uh, and they are used a lot. And then with crypto, that is easy to understand for anybody who has some experience or a basic knowledge. Fantastic. So
0: as the name implies, the property that you are aiming to achieve is a selective disclosure. How does it
1: work? So imagine that you get an ID token from your issuer. The ID token contains all the claims, and when you send it to a verifier, the verifier will look at the the claims and see everything, but can also verify everything because it's signed by the issuer. That's not selective disclosure. Now, what you can do is, um, or what the issuer can do is, instead of putting the the clear text values into into this token, the issuer could put the hashes of each individual claim uh, instead of the claim value into this token. And then the holder of that credential, when it sends the credential to the verifier, sends the credential plus those plain text values that it wants to release. So for example, when you get the hash of my given name, um, it's just some some hash and you obviously cannot uh, go back from, or not easily go back from the hash to the plaintext value. But if I say, okay, my given name is Daniel, then you can just hash my given name and get to the same hash. And that that hash is signed by the issuer. So you can verify it. Good thing. Now, there's one extra step that you need to go. Um, The problem is the verifier, of course, sees the whole token including all the things it's not supposed to learn. And from these things, it only sees the hashes. Now, as I said, it's not easy to go back from a hash to the plaintext value, but it's possible if you, um, especially if you have a limited number of possibilities that the plaintext value could be. For example, if you hash true or false, and you get one hash, you just have to try, is it true or is it false that was hashed? And it will always be the same, of course. Um, if you have a, a birth date, it's not very hard to just iterate through all the possible birth, date, birth dates and check the hash. So you need to do something against guessing attacks. And what you usually do is to salt the hash. That means that the issuer, when creating the token, not only hashes the given name, but a salt value, which is just a random string, together with the given name. And now the um, verifier gets the thing. And for those claims it's supposed to learn, it gets not only the given name, for example, but also the salt value. So it can do the same calculation over the salt value and the given name, and then get to the same hash and it's signed by the issuer and so on. But for all the claims it's not supposed to learn, it will get the hash value, but it will not get the salt value. And the salt value um, contains enough entropy that it's um, almost impossible to guess, so the verifier cannot just guess values. Even if, if it's just true or false, it would need to guess the salt value as well. And uh, yeah, that's um, practically impossible. So the salt protects against guess- guessing attacks.
0: So that's a, such a simple and clever idea. So again, let me, as usual, summarize just to make sure that I got it. So you get a jot which looks very similar to the one that we normally get, but the list of claims, instead of having uh, human readable values, they have uh, something that looks like garbage. And that garbage is just the hash of uh, the values. And then separately, the, um, the holder, the, what we'd call the client uh, nowadays, well, not in OpenID Connect
1: or the wallet so, in, in this. Uh, right.
0: Areas. Yeah, I was trying very hard <laughs> not to say wallet, but like a, let's say the, the entity, like a you, the user, they're using whatever software is necessary to do this trick, uh, receive both these uh, list, the signed list of uh, uh, nonsensical values with the types of all the values, but you also get another list with uh, all the salt, which is necessary to reverse the hash wherever to calculate the hash so that uh, uh, you find out the value. And then when it's time to present this stuff to a verifier, uh, you send the signed list with all the values, but those values are all opaque. So the uh, receiver, the verifier cannot do anything with them apart from the ones for which you choose to reveal what is the content. And you do so by including the salt of the corresponding claim types so that if I have uh, my complete passport and I want to disclose only the name, I'll send the entire passport with all the reducted values plus the salt of just the name. And then the verifier will be able to actually still check the signature. So this passport is actually coming from the issuer that I expect and then actually extract the value only of the salt. So as the name implies, selective disclosure. Is that a
1: fair summary? Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's what's called the, the salted hash approach. Um, we're not the first one. We didn't uh, come up with that approach. Um, for example, it's also used in a mobile driver's license. But this is, um, as far as I know, the first time that this has been used to create credentials based on the popular JWT format.
0: Fantastic. And uh, I have to say that this uh, has been uh, probably one of the uh, fastest uh, accepted uh, um spec in the working group like uh, when this was presented uh, in philadelphia last month and uh, when there was a, after your presentation there was a test call for saying uh, what you guys think pretty much all the hands went up as in like yeah this is great this is great uh, let's add a couple of uh, of details like uh, one thing that I can think of which looks different from the traditional stuff is that uh, now the, that list of uh, hashed values has uh, no audience, right? Like normally we get an ID token, the ID token says this is for uh, client X. Whereas in here you have no or no audience.
1: Exactly. Um, it's not a drop-in replacement for the ID token because of those things. So. The issuer will create the um, credential and send it uh, to the holder or to the user. Um, And of course, the issuer doesn't know where this will be presented. So there's no audience claim in there.
0: That makes sense. And in order to pull off the trick that uh, you described, I guess that uh, now this time we do need to say the word wallet. Uh, like Normally, the client would just be a pipe that uh, the resource gets redirected, uh, and uh, you just like uh, interpret HTML, and you don't need to be particularly smart. But in here, you needed to save all this stuff somewhere. You needed to decide what to disclose, and you actually needed to pick and choose do like format. So it's a new thing, right?
1: Exactly. It's um, it's um, it's not an ID token. Uh, that also doesn't follow the format, and there needs to be um, some some knowledge um, at the client or wallet to to, to do something with this. Um, but we aim what we aimed for is that this format um, essentially can be distilled into something that looks like an ID token at the verifier. So. We, so this is called sdjot, it's not called sdid tokens. Um, we want to have a mechanism that works on any jot. And at the end of the day, the verifier, when it gets the um, the, the credential plus uh, whatever claims were released to the verifier, um, when it has done all the checks, so whether the um, released, salted and, and plaintext values match and whether the thing is signed and so on, what drops out of that verification looks very much like an ID token. Um, maybe missing something, something slightly different, but it's it's very similar. So at that point, you can um, put this into the algorithms that would normally take the data out of an ID token. Um, that was one of the uh, design choices that we made. So this is this is really a short thing. It does have some different formats, especially. Uh, on the way between the issuer and the verifier, but at the end of the day, what you get out of this is very similar. That's
0: great. that's a great point. Like uh, here, I think that there um, there is a bit of a bias when we talk about this thing, which is induced by the paradigmatic scenario that we use to explain this, like the driving license, which uh, suggests that it's something that uh, you want to be able to reuse across multiple scenarios. And so, People often mention this thing about the wallet, which is this uh, hypothetical piece of software that runs on the client, which takes care of saving and using those credentials. But now correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, given that you call this thing a a JWT level, like it's lower level thing. So technically I could have my mobile app that uh, decides to use this format for its own uses and it doesn't require to call anything external like a wallet, like if I'm using a library, an SDK, which is capable of using this format, technically my app could just use this format without necessarily relying on an external uh, app that we'd call a wallet. Uh,
1: Would you say it's fair? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, I also imagine because of this that we will see other use cases um, for this format um, that we don't imagine today. So wherever JORTs are used, you can use this format. Um, that's also why we brought it to um, the IETF, uh, where also in this working group also draw uh, was standardized, uh, because we hope that there will be other use cases beyond, maybe completely beyond identity use cases. Let, let's see.
0: Yeah, and I love that this is simple enough that uh, you can actually do this like uh, the investment that people will love uh, to do in uh, playing with this stuff is relatively low. Like there is no uh, advanced the crypto stock you need to bring. You just need a library that supports this. But now I just want to add a, a tiny bit of uh, uh, complication, which is uh, uh, one of the things that happen often in this space is that uh, on top of all the flows that you described for selective disclosure, there is this thing in which uh, the holder has uh, its own keys. And uh, whenever it does the dance that you described and does the presentation, they also use their own key on top of all the things that they, was uh, described so that uh, the verifier can actually prove that uh, the caller, the holder, is actually the entity to which that credential was uh, issued. Do You want to expand a bit on how it
1: works. Yeah, that's um, a property that's um, some, in, in some use cases important, not in all use cases, but it can be important um, that, uh, yeah, as you said, the, the verifier wants to know that whoever presented this is actually the entity this was issued to. Um, and it's actually quite simple, What um, or the, the flow is quite simple. So the issuer includes um, information about the holders public key in the credential. So, this will be signed over by the issuer, of course, and the verifier gets this reference to a key held by the holder in the document. And then the holder um, will, of course, whatever it sends to the verifier, will, of course, be signed using that um, key. So, in the transaction, and there can also be some, like, some transaction-specific data and nonce or something in there. Um, this means that the, in the transaction, the Verifier can be sure, okay, this was additionally, b- beyond the signature by the issuer, this was signed also by the holder with the key uh, attested by the issuer. And that can be quite important, because um, this can also mean that, depending on your use case and ecosystem that you're in, this can mean that the issuer has, for example, made sure that this credential is bound to your hardware. So maybe the issuer used some attestation framework or something to ensure that the key that is included in the credential is hardware bound. And then the um, verifier gets the stuff. And again, depending on the ecosystem use case and so on, um, can be sure that this not only comes from the holder, but whatever key this was uh, signed with, Uh, Is hardware bound at the holder. So the likelihood that this uh, has been copied to a different device is rather low. See, I
0: love this spec for so many reasons, but one of them is that uh, we are able to talk about these particular scenarios and mechanisms in a very use case oriented way. Because, like, uh, the thing that you described about the holder being able to use a key to secure representation is the quintessential SSI scenario. It's the scenario that uh, the SSI people, the self-sovereign folks present, in which we say, okay, here as a user, you want to have a complete control about your keys and your keys might be kept in a ledger and you use them to prove. uh... But here we came to that scenario from a different angle, as in, uh, we want to be able to use a key in the context of this presentation, because of like, for example, what you just said, like uh, tying this to the hardware, without necessarily instead having that other part as the highest order bit, which is uh, not always very intuitive because uh, the case of a driving license, in the end, uh, what makes or breaks the scenario is whether the issuer actually issued the document to you and what the issuer says it doesn't really matter all that much that you have control over the key that you use for protecting your presentation, if a issuer would, for example, say, your driving license has been revoked. So I love that the SD gives us the opportunity to explore the use of this key without necessarily coloring it with any particular scenario, just as pure capability. And on that note, we are almost out of time. So I, as you can hear, I'd love to like speak for hours about this, but uh, unfortunately the time is what we have. So if you were to issue a call to action, like it's very early days, but this thing already works. Like, uh, it's not like there is anything missing. If people want to achieve the good properties that you described, if they implement, uh, SDGWT as it exists today, they can already do it. So what would you, uh, want, to see from the community on, uh, as action on this new spec?
1: So we have the spec, and it's a very, in a very good shape. Um, we do have reference implementations. We would be happy to see people actually using this. So we have four implementations. Um, one is an implementation that we actually used to create all the examples in the spec. So we have running code uh, as one of the first things we did. Um, and three other independent implementations. So I would see, I would love to see people using this, giving us feedback, um, also identifying the use cases they'll be using this in. We are thinking about adding some features. So if you go to the GitHub page where we have the, the spec, you will see um, the open issues, but it, it's really not much. But we're still thinking about tweaking the spec a bit, but it's in a very good shape, and I would like to get feedback how people use it what they like, what they don't like about this. Um, and yeah, see this used um, in, in the first use cases.
0: Wonderful, fantastic. And of course, we'll add all the links in the description of the episode. So Daniel, thanks again for being uh, a guest and for going into these very interesting, very important topics with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it was a pleasure. I, I could have talked another hour more so about this.
0: Great. So maybe
1: once we have
0: uh, more um, new information about this, then uh, we can uh, have another episode. I'm, I'm pretty um, positive that uh, this scenario will grow in an importance and uh, pragmatic initiatives like this one, like uh, things that you can actually have code like rubber hits the road, I think that they will grow in importance as people move from the hype phase to the actual uh, let's-see-what-can-be-done-here phase. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast is composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by OfZero in partnership with the OpenID Foundation and ID Pro.